0: Hello and welcome to The Methods Podcast. My name is Sarah Hanna and today I am joined by Helen Milner and Alison Evans. Today we will discuss the digital divide and the people it leaves behind. This podcast was recorded on the 27th of April. Helen, you are the Group Chief Executive at Good Things Foundation, a charity which aims to make the benefits of digital technology more accessible and you've even been appointed an OBE for your services. Thank you so much for joining today. It's such a pleasure to to be able to speak to you. Firstly, do you mind telling me what is the digital divide and what are Good Things Foundation doing about it?
1: Well, the digital divide in the UK is 10 million people wide. So the digital divide means that there are people in this country who are not benefiting from the internet in the way that you and I are. That the 10 million people have low digital skills or no digital skills. So that means they're not literate, you know, in the same way as we say that people are illiterate in reading and writing, or they don't have access. So 1.5 million households Um, don't have any form of internet, and 2 million people struggle to pay their broadband bills. 30% of children in households with a household earning of less than 20,000 pounds a year don't have an internet connected device. So these aren't small numbers, but probably most of the people listening to this podcast don't really come across people who don't use the internet. They're probably all about people on their phones doing their apps. And that before the pandemic, people were thinking, oh, well, you know, that they can just go along face to face or they can use the telephone. But actually during the pandemic, it's massively exposed and exacerbated the digital divide. People not being able to get food um, ordered to their home homes, people not being able to order prescriptions or talk to their doctors, people not being able to apply for work or take part in an interview, because all of this was online. And the digital world was online two years ago, but now it's even more online, that that both public and commercial services have massively digitised during the pandemic, which leaves those people who either don't have access, can't afford access, or don't have those skills even further behind.
0: Yeah, that's huge. And the fact you said that 10 million people in the UK, that's a huge number. Could you tell me a bit about who these people are?
1: Yeah, so typically people are either older or poorer, but there's a massive alignment with social deprivation. Um, so, even if you're older, you're likely to not have any qualifications, or and definitely not to have higher level qualifications, and you're definitely going to have a low income. So the overlap is 90% between people um, on lower incomes and lower education attainment and older people. But it's not just older people; it's also people uh, of working age. 40% of people who are digitally excluded are below the age of 60. So I think a lot of people think this is just about older people who haven't used technology. Technology at work or didn't use it at school but it's not because it's both about affordability so people can't afford it so you'll have people who have some digital skills but only have mobile phone access to the internet but that access runs out during the month so they, they're actually digit excluded for some of the time but then you'll also have people who are in low-skilled work who, have, who haven't done so well at school, who uh, just don't have those basic dis- digital skills. It's really surprising to hear that a lot of those people, including at working age, use less than seven websites or apps ever in their lives um, and probably will all use more than seven today in one day, right? So actually it's because they just use it in a very, very limited way.
0: You mentioned that there is this misconception that the digital divide is mainly made up of older people, despite the fact that 40% are under the age of 60. Are there any other common misconceptions?
1: Yeah, a really common one is that they see lots of people walking around with smartphones and therefore everybody has a smartphone. I think statistically there's more smartphones in the UK than there are adults. That doesn't mean that Everybody has a smartphone, that's definitely not true. But it also doesn't mean that everybody who has a smartphone is able to afford it all of the time or that they know how to use it in a way that is really productive for their lives. And then people who, who are not on the internet, who don't use it at all, say it's because of trust and because of negativity. A lot of what they hear about on the radio or on the television is that the internet is a dangerous place. It's full of online harms that people need to be protected from. It's full of fraud and scams where your identity gets stolen and your money gets stolen. So you can imagine that if people are actually hearing much more about the negative aspects of the internet, why they wouldn't want to get online, because actually there are very few people telling them about all of the good aspects because the media doesn't think that's their job. The media thinks their job is to report news, and news is normally a negative thing, not a positive thing.
0: As mentioned, we're also joined by Alison. Alison is a content designer at Methods and has recently been looking into the problem of the digital divide. It's so great to have to speak with you today. Alison, when did you first learn about the digital divide?
2: Um, I suppose that I became aware of it because I was living in West Wales, which is quite a rural area. And so I think probably quite a long time ago, maybe 10 years ago, but there were quite often news items about how people in rural areas and also like more often older people, because their broadband was either very slow or non-existent, it put them at a disadvantage. And I think that was probably the first time I'd given it very much thought. Also, about 10 years ago, about the same time, I was a governor in a school in quite a deprived catchment area and that was when they started putting quite a lot of homework resources online and as governors we just became very aware that families who didn't have internet access, who didn't have the right devices and weren't necessarily from a culture of accessing things online, the children, the, all of these students were really being put at a disadvantage and missing out on a lot of opportunities. When the pandemic happened and it became more of a public issue that the the students were being really disadvantaged um, during home learning, it didn't really surprise me and it just seemed like an inevitable progression from what I'd known in the past. In a personal capacity, I'm a parent carer and my son's disabled and it's slightly different to the digital divide because it's not really about financial or socioeconomic issues, But I'm very aware that my son, as a learning disabled person, a learning disabled adult, is very much disadvantaged because he can't access services because they're not really designed for him. As a parent carer, there's also a crossover with something like something called information poverty or information exclusion, which means that the information just isn't there. So even though I'm tech savvy and I'm really used to using the internet, the information isn't there for me and it isn't there for my son so it puts us both at a disadvantage. Thank you for sharing that and that's really interesting that you found
0: that out in your personal life. It wasn't to do with work even though we work in a, a digital area. How important do you find thinking about the digital divide in your
2: role? I've got that personal experience but it works both ways because I'm not sure if I would have recognised that there's a divide if I didn't have the job that I do, because now I can recognise when a web service isn't accessible to everybody. And so I feel like I've got that privilege to not think, oh, well, it's me, it's my problem. I can think, well, there's a problem with the design of this website. I think a lot of what good content design is, is about making sure that Everything online is accessible to as many people as possible. I'm also an accessibility champion at Methods, and I think that idea of including everybody in every service and every web page that you design is just crucial. As a content designer, what I mainly focus on is the words and the language and the position of those things on web pages, and making sure that the language is clear and not ambiguous, and making sure that When somebody accesses a web page, especially a service, something that they need to access, they feel comfortable in that space. And I think probably Helen knows, and I know that this is something that Good Things Foundation does, is you're not solving the problem of the digital divide just by giving somebody a device. You can't expect somebody who's never had a laptop, who's never had a smartphone, to be given that device and then to feel completely comfortable with using it. That's something that a lot of us take for granted, which is the kind of background and the culture of just being comfortable and engaged online. I think as a content designer, I just make sure that whatever I design, whatever language I use isn't biased, and it does create that comfortable space for people to be able to do what they need, what they want to online. How we begin a project is understanding our users and It's really important that we're understanding all of our users and not just thinking of a typical user, but also the edge cases, the outliers. So somebody who's never looked at a smartphone before, somebody who's from a culture where you don't fill in a form online. You go to the post office and, you know, we have to consider all of those things. There's a bigger problem in the digital divide, like a gender gap. More women are more likely to be affected uh, than men by digital poverty. So making sure that there's no kind of gender exclusive language in anything that we do. Also, it's really important to make sure that anything we design is device agnostic and not to assume that somebody's acting on a laptop or a mobile, redirecting people to read crucial information or sending people to a different tab to open a PDF all those sorts of things, they don't necessarily work on different devices and people aren't necessarily confident with how to use them. We do need to make sure that everything that we're designing and developing is accessible on all of those different devices. As a content designer, there's a lot that we can do to address the problem of the digital divide. It's great to hear how you can
0: think about these things in your personal role. If you think about the bigger context of digital transformation and that's what we do at Methods. What do you think we need to consider about the digital divide during digital transformation?
2: Well really what we're always doing is thinking about user needs and I think when anybody's going through a digital transformation that's the most important thing to make sure that it's a user-led transformation not a business-led transformation. Whatever digital services you're introducing and however you're changing you have to think about how all your users are going to interact with it, feel comfortable with it, and just see that it is for them. I think it's easy and there's a lot of tech optimists who feel excited that digital transformation is somehow going to level the playing field for everybody and say, well, but our services are free and um, they're the same for everybody. But I think that's a kind of a little bit simplistic to think that that's going to address the problem just by introducing a service which is the same for everybody. And whenever you're creating a service or creating a page, we need to recognise what obstacles or struggles people might be dealing with before they can access that. I was listening to a debate the other day about apps and especially older people and smartphones. And apparently there's a beach car park on the south coast, which has not only gone cashless, but it's gone app only to pay for it. And there's a group of older swimmers that like to meet and swim in the sea. And a lot of them are in their 80s and they don't have smartphones. One day they'd gone to the car park, tried to pay, but didn't have smartphones to download the app. There was a number to call, but there was no phone signal in the area. So they couldn't do it. And the honest, lovely people just wanting a swim were just excluded from that. And then other people going to the car park found that they had no signal. So they couldn't even download the app and then were fined for being in the car park. So there's so many things that we need to consider when we're transforming things into being supposedly more convenient and more digital. All digital transformation needs to be done in a way that increases the equality and improves those outcomes for people rather than just kind of reinforcing or widening the gap even further.
0: Helen, you've already spoken a bit about those 10 million people in the UK who are digitally excluded. What are some of the biggest consequences of being digitally excluded?
1: Working age adults, there's exclusion from the job market. So 90% of roles are advertised online. And also employers expect people to have basic levels of digital skills for the workplace, even if it's a no skilled or a low skilled work. That health services, being able to find information, being able to book appointments at some surgeries, obviously now with the uptake in Zoom consultations is really excluding. For using essential services, food, health jobs, being able to find out basic information. During the pandemic, one of the most interesting things of all of the people that we helped when we spoke to them, so we helped over 22,000 people with a a device, a a tablet, with mobile connectivity and, and local support to be able to use those devices and to use the internet And many thousands of those people had never used the internet before. But what was common across all of them, across all ages, was about connection with other people, was about reducing of isolation, about being able to contact friends and family primarily, but also sometimes to be able to contact people like them. Alison, you mentioned adults with learning disabilities, and we did a programme supporting 5,500 adults with learning disabilities, and for them to be able to remotely link in with um, self-advocacy groups, for example, to be able to talk with people who are going through similar experiences, incredibly important. So that element of communication has really never gone away from the internet. So there's essential services, there's the basics, money, food, health, and then there's that all-important communication with other people. Helen, what would it mean
0: for the British public if these people stay digitally excluded?
1: I want to start with the sort of social moral purpose, is that I think most of us believe that there should be some kind of equality within the country and that we... It shouldn't be pushing ahead with digital transformation if actually by pushing ahead we're creating more exclusions as the divide narrows it also deepens so those people who are left behind now are left behind for more services and and more benefits and opportunities than they were two years ago as an example. It's just not right to be improving our society, improving our services and actually that not being uh, available to other people on the other side of that digital divide. But actually lots of research shows that The nation will be better off that if people can interact with one another can do their jobs better can help to grow their communities and not having to move out for work as an example that all of these things will create benefits to society we did work with the cebr so the center for economic business research which showed that if we close that digital divide for good over a 10 year period, the benefit would be over 21 billion pounds. That would be actual money returned to the economy by creating a more just and equal society. You kind of feel like, well, why would you not do it? It's not just good for the individual, which it definitely is, but it's also good for for our communities, for our society and for our economy as well.
2: At the moment, my son is transitioning into adult services. And I found it really, really difficult finding the information that we need about his rights, about the opportunities that are available, like college places, apprenticeships. And what I see would happen in the future if we don't get the information, which we're not at the moment, is that... He won't be able to fulfill his potential. He won't be able to access the opportunities now. He won't be able to progress into a more independent life. Going back to money and like the financial benefits of addressing this, he will end up costing the government of the system a lot more money. But just having all of those things openly available and being able to understand what opportunities he can take advantage of will make a huge difference, not only to his, but it will mean that he would be able to contribute a lot more to society he would be able to access health services so he would have a healthier life hopefully a longer life and he wouldn't be so much I I don't like the word burden but he wouldn't be so much of a burden on the state because he would have been able to access all of these things now at the age of 19 rather than being kept in the dark and then like having a very different pathway through his life I don't really want to make it all about me but it's one example of how things could be so much brighter for individuals and much more beneficial to society and the government and cost saving. Helen, you touched again about how Good Things Foundation
0: are helping overcome this divide. Do you mind telling me a bit more about that process, about the things that you're doing?
1: absolutely it's a good things foundation what's um, super special about our work is that we work in communities thousands of communities right across the uk so we have these par- community partners who can reach and engage and motivate those people who are local to them and who for most part they're already servicing and supporting and in, in other ways i call it a big club with a shared vision so these are local community centers local libraries small local charities that might be very specifically supporting older people or people who are looking for work or adults with learning disabilities Um, and that we even have a fish and chip shop in Stockport and there's also all of the kind of local branches of things that you would expect like Age UK or Citizens Advice Bureau, Salvation Army. So really that I call it a big club with a shared vision because anybody who is supporting people in a local community to learn how to use the internet, to help them to get online, is welcome to be in this club. That there's no exchange of money, everything that we provide for them is free, and that we all are in it because we share that vision that we want to fix the digital divide. And we provide three things. So we provide those community organisations with support, with capacity building, with training for them and for their volunteers. we have an online learning platform called Learn My Way. So that's designed in, in all of those great ways to be super simple, to use simple language, to have a consistency so people know what they're getting. So that's the first one is the support we provide for those those community partners. And then we have two offers to help with access. We have a national data bank. We've created that with Virgin Media O2. It's like a food bank, but for mobile um, connectivity data. Um, and it has 500,000, so half a million SIMs and vouchers in that data bank, provided by O2, Vodafone, and Three, so that people who can't afford to be on the internet can come to one of our local partners and they can receive those free SIMs and support. And then the third element is a device bank. So to pair up with that data bank, we are just setting up this device bank so businesses can donate their used technology. So both their devices, but other technology as well into the device bank, and we will repurpose them and provide people who don't have devices, who can't afford devices, with, with laptops and tablets and smartphones to enable them to pair that up with that connectivity data and to be able to get online and of course get that amazing support for their basic digital skills from those community partners. So we, we think this is a beautiful, a, a wonderful model that should be able to reach the millions of people who need that help in our society.
0: That's amazing. Thank you, Helen. Alison, Helen's already told us a bit about what the Good Things Foundation are doing to help. How have you found working at Methods has been able to help you tackle digital exclusion?
2: I think Methods has been a great place to be working. The the ethos is very much about adding social value to every project that we're involved in. And I think that everybody that I've been working with in, in Methods is just like very open to the idea of accessibility and making sure that everything we do is including everybody and a user-centered design. I don't think it's too grand a statement to say that we could kind of progress a social justice agenda through digital design, change the story for people using digital services, or at least open up conversations about how we can improve digital experiences for everybody. So I think that that's a really strong part of being part of Methods. When you access a service online, it's a real reflection of how society treats individuals and treats everybody as a whole. Because if you go on a site and it's open to everybody and it's clear that everybody's welcome in that space, then it's a really good reflection on a society. So I think that that's something that we can make sure that everybody who needs to use Digital services is valued and is included and is regarded and part of everything that we do. Helen, what do you think society does need to do to end data poverty?
1: Data poverty specifically is about the people not being able to afford broadband, be that mobile or fixed line. It's something that at Good Things Foundation we've gone out and we've been quite bold about because we think that when it's purely about affordability, that we should be able to eradicate data poverty. We should be able to make it that everybody in this country can have access to the internet. Obviously, data poverty is is the specifics about internet access. It's not about the devices and the skills. already mentioned the data bank, so the national data bank, where people can get free mobile connectivity through our community partners is definitely a huge part of that picture. So that will be able to support up to half a million people. The telecoms companies are bringing what's called social tariffs. So that's where people who, for example, are on universal credit can get lower cost, discounted fixed-line broadband, so around £15 a month. I I like to think about, are there more radical ideas? Telcos could put up my broadband um, package fee. Um, I could pay an extra £15 a month and someone else could get it for free. right? But it's interesting that I think as a society, a lot of people go, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. Having said that, during the pandemic, when I was on Breakfast TV talking about digital exclusion, and we had a little old lady phoned up to say that she had an iPad and she wanted to give it to a child who couldn't um, do homeschooling, like her actual iPad that she actually used. You know, the generosity of the general public could surprise us. The way I think about it is that we can keep innovating, but at the end of the day, it has to be a government, business and societal construct where, you know, maybe we pay a little bit more in our bills. Maybe the government subsidises it a little bit and the and the businesses subsidise it. I think it's important always to think it's not about technology, it's about people. And people live in a society and they have the structural and systemic challenges within that society. In Australia, um, telephone boxes are now completely... Free because actually... It used to be about that, you know, now most people who use telephone boxes are using them in an emergency. And that if it's about cash, then they probably won't have any. If it's about um, technology like using a card, then you still have to install that and maintain it. So if you just make it free, then actually it costs about the same to run it. But it's then much better for people, because if you're in an emergency, you can just pick it up and you can make that phone call. So actually, it's about releasing the idea that by making something free, it then makes it more expensive because it's probably much more expensive to maintain a a public telephone box network that takes money or even has technology in it than just having a basic telephone that's free to use one of our data poverty lab fellowships is looking at whether or not the internet should be a utility or a human right if we said for example that the internet is a human right then how does that change the construct so should all houses when you move in have the internet in it and turned on like water private rented social rented when you buy a house should it actually have the internet switched on by default like water and then you pay your bills I mean obviously with water we don't have any choice we have the water from whoever you know the the local area provides it but you could choose who who you're going to be paying for your internet that internet could be a very basic level so it could enable you to find information to contact core services to send emails but not to stream video and not to do video conferencing, it could be free at a basic level for everybody. And again, that's provided by the companies that keep it switched on, right? And that could be subsidized by the government, or it could be subsidized by other customers. We're lucky in the UK that we've got a very market driven broadband sector, which means although in in rural places, it can still be terrible, you know, access and, and availability and speeds can still be very bad. But we have quite a lot of choice, particularly in our urban areas and quite competitive pricing. Having said that, we shouldn't just do things the same way because it's the way we've always done it. And now if we're saying that the internet is a most basic and fundamental thing for every single person in our society... Why do we make it so hard for them to actually be able to get access to it? And why should we not have more radical ideas about how we provide that access to them?
0: Are you optimistic about this change? Have you seen any positive change already or any improvements made by the government?
1: I'm optimistic about our ability to innovate and be generous, particularly at that kind of community level, innovation as well as Things like social tariffs and the data bank, you know, those innovations are all terrific. I'm not optimistic that there's going to be any kind of grand plan. It's very difficult to push this above other agendas. I, I think that you know we've had a pandemic. We now have the invasion of, of Ukraine. We have an NHS that we're constantly told doesn't have enough money, which I'm sure it doesn't. And keeping ourselves and our loved ones alive is definitely a priority, I'm sure, for all of us. So that grand plans and innovation really do take a big push and a big shift. I think that if we can find a good economic way forward. Obviously we already have the evidence that this this will be good for society and it will be good for the economy but actually how do we construct a big solution that doesn't cost the government billions of pounds is the real challenge here and how do we get digital exclusion to compete with other big policy agendas is also the issue.
0: Thank you Helen. After what we've spoken about today I'm hoping that people are thinking this is all great, but what can I do? I want to finish this podcast by asking both of you, what steps can people take to help close this divide? Alison, I'll start with you. If you're someone that's working in a digital transformation company or in a similar role
2: or sector, what are some practical things that people can do to help? we've always got to think about who needs to use everything that we're designing. Like I say, don't have a, a typical user or user personas, just always think about those outliers. And whenever you start a design, whenever you're thinking about um, designing a service, check your assumptions, check your privileges, and just be very aware, not as a kind of Exercising self-flagellation, like we don't have to feel ashamed that we have certain privileges, but just be aware that not everybody has the same experience as you. It's not even a financial thing, like we'd be talking about. It's kind of a social and a cultural experience, and all of these things are really important to engage and feel comfortable online. Always think about the people that are going to be using your service and. Don't make assumptions, don't think, uh, well, older people aren't going to want to use this, or younger people are going to be confident using this, because that's not how it works. People from different careers, people with different kind of work experience, people who've got different family backgrounds, all of that kind of thing, it all adds up to the way a person experiences digital services. Find out about what experiences other people are having and I I think follow people like Helen and research that kind of thing. So just like grow and and develop as a person and understand what experiences other people are having and that will really inform whatever work you're doing and make it better for everybody. It really crosses over with accessibility and inclusion and making sure that everybody's welcome to your service and everybody's welcome to your page. And also in everyday experiences, um, not just designing for users or customers, but when you're engaging with people in the workplace, just be aware of how people might feel about online services, be aware of how people might behave in Teams conversations and whether people are comfortable using that kind of tech. I think in our jobs, it's kind of easy to assume that everybody feels the same about a Zoom call or a Teams call, but not everybody does because they haven't had the same sort of experience. So I think just be a champion for all kinds of inclusion in work, when you're talking to people, when you're sharing online services and when you're having those kind of online experiences, always be aware that not everybody has the same background. People have different struggles. Can I just say, I really love that idea of having internet built into the walls. <laughs> I I love that because I, I do think it's easy to presume that people using the internet, it's a kind of frivolous thing, isn't it? Because there's such a big, like, oh, everyone's just scrolling. Young people are scrolling on their phones or buying or shopping on that, that all those sorts of things. But it turns out they have to have internet access to enable them to, get food to stay healthy, to access financial, to access benefits. So yeah, I think the idea of a built-in internet into society is a a fantastic one. I don't think it's overly grand or optimistic, I think it's definitely something that, that we should do. Thank
0: you Alison. And Helen, the same question for you, what are some practical things that people can do at home to help close this gap?
1: I think have a think about your own family and friends. You know, are there people who are struggling to use the internet or your neighbours? Reach out in your local community. If you go to our website, so goodthingsfoundation.org, you can find local support near me. But actually, if there's a local community organisation, then you could give them a call and see if they would like your help, which would be terrific. With old technology and that we're not set up at the moment in the device bank to receive individuals technology but there are plenty of schemes that do take your tech don't put it in a drawer you know because once you put it in a drawer it becomes obsolete there's lots of schemes out there three will take your smartphones there may well be a local refurbishing organization who would take your devices just don't let it sit around that's what i always do i think that's what we all normally do we're not quite sure what to do with it i mean even sell it on music magpie i mean that won't help digital inclusion but it will definitely help the planet right so there that but obviously methods is our charity of the year or whether their charity of the year and so anyone who's working at methods will have lots of opportunities i hope to get involved to help to raise donations or to do volunteering work I think that's really special. And I just want to say about designing of services. So obviously designing of content, making it jargon-free and easy to use, but also a lot of design for services where you have to validate, you know, you have to go and get a code on a text or an email, or even if you have to go to an email to click on that email. Just remember if you're if the people you're designing for are not very confident at using the internet, they're going to find that extra step really difficult. It's not like us. We're not just another tab open and just click on it and off we go. Actually all of those steps that you need to add in. It's normally for security, so often it's a very hard trade-off because you want it to be as secure as possible. But just remember everybody isn't as competent and au fait and will be using the internet in the way that, that you do. I think the most important thing though is to understand and empathize that there is a deep digital divide that there are people who do not have the same advantages and benefits of using the internet that all of the people who are listening to this podcast will have and that there are so many ways in which people can get involved and obviously uh, at Good Things Foundation we have lots of ways for people to get involved and to help out and lots of hints and tips and resources the first next step is to go and look at Good Things Foundation website or, or follow us on social media.
0: That was Helen Milner, CEO of Good Things Foundation, and Alison Evans, content designer at Methods. Thank you both for joining me today. As Helen mentioned, you can learn more about the digital divide and what you can do about it at goodthingsfoundation.org.